we, we, we identify ourselves and articulate ourselves as wanting to, to be a family. Lord willing, a gracious family. And as I said earlier, not like the crazy uncle that you, you see once a year and you're not real sure about. Uh, but that, that healthy family. That, that family that's a picture of God's work. And it's a celebration of what God is doing. Um, but this gathering... May it be a beautiful gathering. Would that it be a beautiful gathering. Would that it continue to be a beautiful gathering. And so here's what I want to accomplish with you this morning. Is, is I want to try to put together some of the big ideas that we have looked at over the past several weeks together. And I want to try to put them together and put them underneath an umbrella that that I I personally find incredibly helpful for understanding some of the the wide scope of the Scriptures. And as we think about ourselves as a local expression of this beautiful gathering of God's people, we, we should rightly think about ourselves having a mission, but our mission should reflect God's mission. And if it doesn't, we, we have the wrong mission, but it should reflect. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to try to build out for us an umbrella to consider what we should be about and in doing so, have us look at what God is about. And, and I want to, in, in a lot of ways, try to build a framework for us that, that might help us understand what God is at work doing and what we should spend our days being about doing as well. So let me pray. Let's ask the Lord to, to, to guide all of this, and then we will hop in and continue. Father God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the one who saved us when we were in utter darkness. And Lord, you're the one that binds our hearts to yourself when we are oftentimes prone to wander. And Lord, we, we say, come. We want you to come. So we, we looked last week that you, your coming is going to far surpass anything we know and understand here. God, in these moments, I pray that you would come and you would teach. God, I pray that you would come and you would, you would guide my words so that they are accurate. God, may they be accurate to your perfect word. God, I pray that you'd, you'd guide our thoughts, what we, what we see, what we think, what we understand from your word. God, I pray that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. So to build out this framework, I think it's important for us to understand that what forms and creates us into this beautiful gathering is going to be in large part an understanding of what God is doing in the world. And so let me just give you what I would define the mission of God to be. And, and that is God glorifying himself by reconciling all things to himself. God glorifying himself by reconciling all things to himself. And where we ended last week was really a, a prayer and a plea and an exhortation and an encouragement that this year, individually 
and corporately that we would pursue glorifying God to an even greater degree. And that prayer and that exhortation and that encouragement comes out of the mission that God has to glorify himself. That God's at work in the world setting his glory on display. Now there is a a godness to God that we can't fully wrap our minds around. We can't fully fathom. We get glimpses of it. We see instances of it. We, we, we know that it's other, but there's, there's, there's a godness to God. And in some ways this morning, words may fail me because I'm trying to describe him. There's a godness to God. So he's existing to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself. Now here's the thing. You could say, and I don't think it's incorrect to say, that God is self-centered. He is. But he's not like us. He's not sinfully self-centered. He's self-centered. Christ is self-centered. I mean, you look at the Gospels of Christ over and over and over and over again in me. In me, in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. I, I, you just look at what Christ said. Where the scribes and the Pharisees and the other rulers of that day would have taken what had been said and would have taught as, as meager mouthpieces. But the scriptures say that Christ came and taught as one who had authority. And so oftentimes his sermons were characterized by, you've heard it said, but I say. Christ the one that has the authority to speak the words of God. There is an otherness to God that we can't fully comprehend, and it ultimately is for our good. That is, as God's for Himself and for His glory, He's not interested in our begrudging submission. And I really am grateful to a pastor who articulated in that way because God's not interested in our obedience because it's somehow Him thumbing us down and trying to hold us back from what really may be the fulfillment of our heart's desires. Rather, God's trying to lead us to what He knows will ultimately and fully satisfy what our hearts desire, even if we can't put words and articulations to those desires. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, it's not that we have misplaced desires, it's that we're just far too easily satisfied. And when there's a ship waiting to take us on a cruise in the middle of the ocean, we're content playing in mud puddles but God wants to lead us to something so far greater and he is the only one that can say that's in me that's in me that's found in me but here's the thing humanity bought into the lie that life's about themselves ultimately as we thought about as we looked at worship Adam and Eve exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something that was created. It's the same exchange that you and I are tempted to do where the Apostle John in John chapter 2 will say, look, beware of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That temptation is an invitation to exchange the glory of God for something created. The glory of the immortal creator. That Christ himself was tempted in that way when the serpent came. And, and I, think, I don't even think we looked at it, but we just glanced through it. And I believe I just made reference to it that in Matthew 4, you look at the temptations of Christ and it's 
is those same three categories that Eve reasoned the fruit was pleasing to one's sight. It's lust of the eyes. It was good for food. It's lust of the flesh. It was able to make one wise. It's boastful pride of life. And, And you have humanity, Adam and Eve, or Adam, I should say, as our federal representative representing all of mankind, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for something created. And so that lie that we are prone to believe that life is about ourselves is one that we're just born with. But it's one that we see reaffirmed almost at every step. And it's reaffirmed at Christmas time. It's reaffirmed in your workplace. It's probably oftentimes trying to reaffirm itself in your own heart and soul. And that's part of the war we do against being self-centered in a sinful way. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things was falling short of the glory of God. God's, his mission is to glorify himself and to do so by reconciling all things to himself. But for you and I to live for God's glory... It's not just some cute saying that we should put on a coffee cup and and, and celebrate as we sip our morning joe. It really does and should become this wide, encompassing, umbrella idea that guides and directs everything that we do. And here's why. God's not a means to an end. He's the end. Salvation is reconciliation with God. God's not a means to an end. He is the end. I think I mentioned it last week when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples in John 14 and he was talking to them about, I'm I'm leaving, guys. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you and in my Father's house there are many rooms and I, I go to prepare this place for you and if it were not so I would have told you and, 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 and I, I remember my, my Awana verses just stopping short but that next verse is that where I am so you may be I think they would have been pretty upset if all they got was a room and they didn't get to continue to dwell in the presence of Christ And as we read in Revelation 21 last week, God's dwelling will be with his people and they will be with him. See, God's not a means to an end. He is the end. And I would submit to you that if if in your heart you you find yourself thinking that God's a means to something else, that, that something else is an idol. And here's how that's worked out in my life, I, I often, and I, I don't know if, if it's just me or if any of you can, can say amen to this, but I find myself to be fairly superstitious. I don't know where it comes from, and I'm not sure why, but, but I remember thinking very specifically that, like, oh, I better do my devotion so I have a good day. Anybody else ever thought that or, or like, oh, today I didn't do them. I hope it's not a real terrible day and and I, I remember specifically thinking like I need to keep things right with God so that I can marry Carrie but you see the subtleness there 
You see the, you see the, the, the exchange and the subtleness of that? It's not that she's not a good gift. She is. And it's not that my heart was wrong to desire to marry her. But when I view God as a means to another end, I've just made her out to be this idol. And like any idol, she will disappoint every time. God's not a means to a greater end. He is the end. And so there's something so far other than ourselves that has to be understood when we understand what God is doing, even in saving us and what he is doing at work in the world. And that other is he is is existing to glorify himself. And the heavens exist to declare his glory. And this is for our good because it's in him that the paths of life are made known. It's in his presence that there's fullness of joy and it's at his right hand there's pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 1611. And I'm so indebted to, to the, the, the content and the character of, of, of preaching of men of like John MacArthur and John Piper and to a large extent my father and, and others that, that have just consistently time and time again driven this point home that, that life is not about me. It's about something else. God's mission is to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself. So here's what I want to do. You may think this is a terrible strategy. And we may get to the end of this and go, well, that was a terrible strategy. I want to overwhelm you in the next several minutes. And some of you are like, that just sounds terrible. I want to overwhelm you with the amount of biblical data that speaks to the fact that God is for God. That God is for himself. He exists to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself. And what I want to do is I want to, in the next minutes that we have, I just want to start quoting a whole bunch of scripture. And I just want to drive this point home. And so... Get the references. I wouldn't even try to take notes from what the texts say. Write the references down. Spend some time over the next few days or few weeks working through them. But God is for God. There's so, there's something so far greater than anything being for us. That if we're going to be this beautiful gathering, this other, this godness to God that we are formed by, that we celebrate as we gather, is what will form us into this people that no longer look at themselves, that no longer look at what distinguishes us, but rather what should rightly unite us. And it's God. And so where I want to begin is I, I just want to begin quoting some scriptures about salvation because our salvation ultimately isn't even about us. 
our salvation is for God, it's for His glory. And these texts that we're going to look at go through and they say the word glory and they picture uh, God's glory. Oftentimes the word for my name's sake will be something that we hear and it's just tremendous. So here we go. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God didn't forget who he was, but he was talking to a group of people that forgot who he was. But I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember not your sins. It's fascinating when we think about the man who wrote this with Isaiah. His call to ministry in chapter 6 of this book happened as he was given a picture of the glory of God. He was ushered in to the temple in the heavens and he was given a vision of God's glory and the angel's Responding back and forth to one another in antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah's response is, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But God, God atones for Isaiah's sin. And he starts speaking through this man. He says, hey, write this down. I'm the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Paul in Romans 11, 33 through 36, in summarizing what was 11 chapters of articulating salvation, says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That God's doing something that we're not going to figure out. He's doing something that we have no right to speak into because his judgments are unsearchable and his way is unscrutable. Who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul would write in Ephesians 1, continuing to just articulate that salvation is for God's glory. Verses 1 to 14 of chapter 1 are really broken down into three different parts. And there's a refrain that occurs in each one of those parts. And the first is verses, well I should say 3 to 6. Verses 3 to 6 is an articulation of what the Father is doing in salvation. And verse 6 has this statement, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verses 7 to 12 is an articulation of what the Son has done in salvation. And verse 12 ends, to the praise of His glory. Verses 13 and 14 is an articulation of what the Holy Spirit is doing in regards to saving and keeping and preserving and guaranteeing the work that God began, He will complete. And verse verse 14 ends to the praise of His glory. 
we celebrate a Trinitarian salvation because all three members of the Trinity acted in perfect unity and harmony with one another to the praise of their glory. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 2, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This theme's just going to continue. Let's go back. Exodus 14, 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, that's the Israelites, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God was doing something with the Exodus. He was doing something that was far beyond Christian Bale just holding up his hand and the waters splitting. He was doing something to glorify himself. Exodus twenty four seventeen. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Can you just imagine the Blue Ridge Mountains on fire but not being consumed? Can you imagine looking east and just seeing this devouring fire? The glory of the Lord was like that. First Chronicles sixteen twenty eight and 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Psalm 8, 1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim His handiwork. Psalm 23. That beloved psalm, verses 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness. For what? His name's sake. He's doing this for himself. Psalm 2410, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The, the Lord of hosts it's the Lord's Sabaoth. It's, it's, the, it's the Hebrew name for the, the Lord's name that commanded the angelic armies. It's pre-incarnate responsibility of Christ who commanded the angelic armies. The Lord Sabaoth. He is the King of glory. Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, but according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of of your goodness, O Lord. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Psalm 106, 6-8, But we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God just wasn't doing something at the Red Sea so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know and see his glory. He was doing something so that the Israelites would know and see his glory and Psalm 106 looks back and it it, it really interprets history for us 
to say that when the Israelites came to that shore and they saw water before them and they saw an army behind them and they had a little bit of a freak out moment and said, Moses, you brought us here to just simply be devoured? That God was doing something. He was doing something so that they might know that he saved them for his name's sake. Parenthetically, you want to understand in snapshot fashion really the history of the Old Testament. Psalm 106, Acts 7, 1 Corinthians 10. Three different passages that really summarize Israel's history. Tremendously helpful. Psalm 113.4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. Isaiah 43, 10 to 13, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I am chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. Isaiah forty five eighteen for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited, and He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Isaiah forty eight nine For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Isaiah forty eight eleven for my own sake, for my own sake I do it for how should my name be profaned my glory I will not give to another Isaiah sixty six eighteen. for I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming together all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory Ezekiel twenty fourteen. but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the, of the nations, in, in whose sight I brought Israel out. As Ezekiel twenty forty four, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel. Habakkuk 2.14, picturing what is to come, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. But this isn't just an Old Testament concept it's pervasive throughout the scriptures Matthew 5:16 in this same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven what did the angels say when they frightened the shepherds glory to god in the highest on an earth peace among those with whom he is pleased john 1 14 we've been looking at this verse the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said in John 15, If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
John 15, 13 to 15, Jesus is continuing, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's not at work when Christ is not glorified. Part of the reason that I've just tried to set before us time and time again and have tried to say time and time again that we need to be a people that exalt Christ is because that's when God works. It's the job of the Holy Spirit is to shine a spotlight on the sun. 1 Corinthians 10 31, this is kind of the watershed text that probably many of you have memorized. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, and all that you do, do all for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. And let me make a comment here that John 15, 13 to 15 passage is incorrect. It's John 16. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And we talked about this talked about how our sanctification happens when we behold and exalt Christ. We'll behold His glory and we're transformed into that image from one degree of glory to the next. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, speaking of Jesus, He is the, in, the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What Paul is saying, China's for Jesus. Africa is for Jesus. America is for Jesus. He created it for himself. Those rulers, the Cuban government that we don't love, that everybody's up in arms with, it's for Christ. We may not understand how. We may not have, at this point, the eyes to see how it all comes together and how God will be glorified in that, but it's for Him. And He created it. And He holds it together. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed in him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, every, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there will be a day that this happens. And for those who place their faith and trust in Christ now will be reconciled to God and there will be an everlasting presence that they will spend their eternal days with. 
But for those who do not bend their knee to Christ, whether they die or whether he comes back, they too will bow then in confession that Christ is Lord. The scriptures say that that confession will ultimately be for their condemnation. I said that God exists to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself. That's taken from Colossians 1 verses 18 and 19 where it says that God is aiming to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. There is a relational peace that we enjoy with God and that we enjoy with one another, but there will be a day when the enemies are no longer active and there will be peace in that regard as well. And so this reconciling that God is doing, this reconciling all things to himself, for those of us that place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, will be a glorious reconciliation. Hebrews 1.3, I love this verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And you want to you want to know why the second commandment existed? Don't have any graven images before me. It's because Christ is the image of God. We weren't to have graven images. Israel wasn't to make the golden calf because Christ is the image of the invisible God. The exact imprint of his nature, but the writer of Hebrews goes on, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We sang this as little kids, didn't we? He's got the whole world in his hands. It's probably not quite accurate enough. Hebrews says he's got the universe that he's just upholding by the word of his power. That breath you just enjoyed, it's because Christ allowed you to enjoy it. That thought you and I just had, because Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And all things were created through him, and all things are created for him. There is a godness to God that you and I can't fully wrap our minds around, but God exists to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself. And we get to Revelation, and we have some pictures of what is happening in heaven. And John records for us in Revelation 4, 11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created by, you created all things. And by your will they exist and are created. Revelation five twelve to 13 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation twenty one twenty three. We read this last week. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. God exists. The mission of God is to glorify Himself by reconciling all things to Himself. And so our mission as now this local gathering 
of people, this local gathering of the church, is to be birthed out of his mission. And so we should exist to glorify God. And again, that's not just a cute saying that you put on a coffee cup. That should be what pervades and encompasses and characterizes our our lives. That we may give God glory for everything. And so how we work, we, we work to glorify God. I parent to glorify God. I lead you to to glorify God. I I try to be a loving, gracious, kind, Christ-honoring husband for God's glory. Because he's the end. He's not a means to anything. So we exist for God's glory. I mean, our salvation is for his name's sake. Now, do you and I benefit in that? Absolutely. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, and we looked at this passage, that he died so that those whose sake he died for may no longer live for themselves, but for him. So I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater to say that you and I don't matter. No, we matter a great deal. And we mattered enough for God to send his only son to come and die on the cross for us. But ultimately, that was for his glory. something so much greater than just you and I. This thing cannot terminate on ourselves. Because if it does, we just begin to look at us. We begin to navel gaze. And that's not really good for anybody. Especially when you got fuzzy navels. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go into the world. Make disciples. Or probably more accurately translated, as you are going, make disciples. See that that word, go, or those words that we would render differently, as you are going, it's it's written in such a way that it that it communicates action, but it communicates action in a descriptive way. So Jesus is describing the apostles doing something. He's describing actually all of those who were there to worship him. And he's describing their action. And he's saying, as you go, make disciples. So as you go home, make disciples. God's put you in a neighborhood. He has given you neighbors. They may be crazy. I don't know. But he has given you neighbors. He has given you a mission field. Students, you go back to school tomorrow. Sorry. If that was a bubble, I just popped. I'm sorry. You got like 12 hours before you need to go to bed. And so, well, that's probably a late bedtime. Uh, But you go back tomorrow. You got a mission field. As you are going, 
You make disciples. So I think we could encapsulate some of this to say, well, if God's mission is to glorify himself by reconciling all things to himself, that we may now be able to kind of work out a definition for us to say that we would say our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. That's why we exist. We exist for his glory, but we exist as those who are going as disciples to make disciples. And I don't think this is an incredibly difficult concept. I think oftentimes it can simply be characterized by you turning to the person next to you and saying, hey, come follow me as I follow Jesus. Hey, let me, let me, let me tell you what I learned when I was reading the scriptures this morning. Hey, how can I pray for you? These are, these are ways to, to bridge into spiritual conversations. Jesus said he'd build his church. So you and I aren't responsible for the results, but we have been given a responsibility to be the ones that go, to be the ones that make the disciples. So we then teach and train everyone to behold the glory of Christ. We teach and train everyone to live for the glory of God. In this beautiful gathering of people, we should be united in glorifying God through the exaltation of Christ. And glorifying God is what will cut through all of the differences that we do bring when we gather. It's what cuts through red states and blue states. It's what cuts through rap music and folk, pop, country, whatever. It's what cuts through the really artistic people with the really logical people. It's what, it just cuts through it all. Because there's something greater. And this thing doesn't terminate on us. It goes beyond. It goes for His glory. So along the way, I think there's some markers that will characterize our mission. And none of these are new for you. You've heard me say this before. But these are things that, that as your overseers have, have worked through, and we have worked through these, and we have talked about these, and we have said together, we are committed to these. So these are not Tim's thoughts These are things that I proposed to the group of leaders that God has put in place here. I said, guys, I, 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 I want to know that I can stand up before them, and I didn't foresee that I'd be sitting, but I want to know that I can go before them and say, we own these, not I. And I can. This be what characterizes us. So our mission to glorify God by being Christ or disciple-making disciples, I think we'll have some marks along the way that we can gauge how we're doing. Are we Christ-centered in our preaching and teaching? And I say this, this has to pervade all levels. Are our children learning about Jesus? Are our teens learning about Jesus? Are we 
exalting and learning about Christ. There should be a Christ-centered preaching and teaching that characterizes the church. Secondly, biblical leadership. God has, has given the church a great gift and a plurality of leaders. And we've got some work to do to, to continue aligning ourselves to what the New Testament pictures and outlines for us for biblical leadership. Thirdly, intergenerational gatherings. You've heard me speak before to this, but we got to be all right with all ages. And I do think there is appropriate reasons for our smallest ones to go and have a time together that's gauged and geared towards them. I do think that. But we got to be a church that celebrates all ages. Got to be a church that's willing to be committed to declaring to the next generation the things of the Lord. And I, I think the most encouraging moment I've had yet here was the Sunday after Thanksgiving when we had that testimony time and it was chaos. Like the music time was just chaos. My daughter's the one who's just running up and down the aisle and I loved it and I hated it all at the same time. It's like, that we gotta get this child to sit down and, and, and yet there was something beyond that that we wanted to accomplish. And then what happened when we started passing the mics? A whole bunch of little kids just started talking. Now, I don't know, parents, if you prepped your kids. We didn't prep ours. We just told them, hey, you're going to sit down and join the big people for the worship service. I was so encouraged by hearing so many of these young ones speak. Do they understand everything? No. I, do we understand everything? No. But are there, are there some things that they're getting? Yeah. And, and I, I couldn't think of a more encouraging thing for you if you've grown up in this church and you've loved this church for decades than to see the youngest ones of us declaring the things of the Lord. Because that's what we want. Because if it doesn't happen, these doors close and this thing just gets shut down. We're really only ever a generation away from it just falling apart. Man, how awesome was it? In the midst of the chaos, we had an opportunity to, to hear from 90-year-old saints, 5-year-old saints. They're all declaring the things of the Lord, and that's to celebrate. That should mark us. And so this mission to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. It's huge. And it encompasses everything. But I find it helpful to think about these things in the way the scriptures teach on these things. That life isn't about me. Life's not about me having a good marriage. It's not about me raising moral kids. It's just not about me. It's about God. 
There's a godness to him that I can't fully understand. And he is doing something that I can't oftentimes get my mind wrapped around. But I know he's at work. And I know what he is doing is to glorify himself. And I know ultimately that is for my good. And for me to posture my life to live for his glory. It should what mark it, it should mark and characterize my days, our days. And so next week we begin the book of Mark. If you haven't had an opportunity to read the sermon series guide, I would encourage you to do so. We'll hit some of the things next week as we introduce the book. And I don't want to spend a lot of time now doing that, but Mark really puts forth and answers two questions that he rhetorically asks. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And so Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And so we're going to draw near. We want to be this people that are characterized by Christ-centered preaching and teaching who want to know and understand who Jesus Christ is. And so we begin Mark next week, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and that will be our aim to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Would you pray with me? The band's going to come up. I ask them to lead us in a song, Glory to God. And I would encourage you to sing this song as, as a prayer as we close. The verses are tremendous. Before the world was made, before you spoke it to be, you were the king of days. Yeah, you were. I mean, this song has its language that bears what we've just read. But I love the verse and the bridge, or excuse me, the chorus and the bridge. Take my life and let it be all for you, for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. And may that be us. Pray that we would be characterized by that individually and corporately. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have spoken to us about yourself. God, I pray that you'd give us the grace we need to be the people you want us to be. That you would come and work and refine and, and, and move and change and, and cut and repair and, and, and just do what you do so that we may look more like Jesus and you may be glorified even more. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen.